Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer, and I'm your chief investigator of images. I am joined by a friend and wonderful guest today, Dr. Michael Scott. Now, you are best known as Associate Professor of Classics at Warwick University, grand title, but you're a fellow broadcaster like me, aren't you? I am indeed, I am indeed, indeed. We've had the joy of being on a programme or two together. <laughs> we have, we have. We did Quizium together, which was great fun, but, but you also do Invisible Cities, don't you? And on we... BBC One, yeah, and yeah. most recently also History of Sicily on BBC Two. Oh, of course, you're all over the TV, you're all over the TV. Um, but, and I've managed to grab your precious time to take you to the British Museum. A second home from home for us both for us both I know it's a bit sad I was saying that whenever I get out in London anywhere in London my feet just take me to the British Museum it's sort of the tragic kind of geeks walk <laughs> but there's so much to see and you've actually taken me to a gallery that I don't usually come to uh, you see come to the very weird and wacky world of the Greeks uh, we're in room 14 of the <laughs> British Museum which is the Greek vases room now Greek vases sounds a bit weird it sounds like we should be putting flowers and everything <laughs> but actually vases is is a term that's, that's used to cover all the different specially designed vessels that the Greeks used when they wanted to have a party. <laughs> so it's your cups, it's your decanters, it's your jugs. And the Greeks were very particular. Every element of this whole process had a specifically designed vessel for it. And the one I want to have a look at with you today is, if you can believe it, this is called a psicta. Now, mm. what does that mean? It actually is a wine cooler. Oh, lovely. Very it. useful art exactly. item, I exactly. think. We no, can no, agree. No, no. You're in the hot <laughs> grease. You're in your symposium. You're in your man-only dining room. You're all reclining on, you know, kind of on your elbows. Your <laughs> wine needs to be at the right temperature. Without refrigeration, they had wine coolers. So what they would do, they would fill this thing with the wine, mm -hmm. and then they would put it in a massive big vessel which would be filled with cold water ah. and they would allow it to bob in the cold water until the wine cooled to exactly the right temperature and then it would be poured out into other vessels which were for pouring the wine into your cups right then you had a lot of vessels. you see now i am i'm really pleased with myself now because whenever i have a party i have an old roll top bath that i fill with ice and let the bottles bob around in and obviously i'm channeling my inner greek your inner greek <laughs> Whether you want to still be doing that by the end of 
the time we finish discussing this object. Oh my goodness. Let's come back to that. Yeah, but one thing that's brilliant about starting with Greek uh, Greek art is, of course, you know, this, this podcast, it's all about looking at art from across the ages. And in many ways, we could see the Greek tradition, the Greek classical tradition, as the birth of the discipline, couldn't we? Yeah, I mean, in many ways, yes, certainly within the Western world. Right, yeah. kind of. Um, I mean, I think what's crucial to, to get across is that these vessels that we use for drinking, when we go to the pub today, we, we don't really expect there to be an image on our beer mug or our wine glass. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a glass. Right? But for the Greeks, these vessels were optimum prime time space to cover with images so that when you were sitting there drinking from them or using them to pour wine or cool wine or whatever you were doing you were looking at stuff okay Uh, so this you have to imagine the kind of the greek symposium the drinking party being as much about looking at images as it was as about drinking wine and chatting with your fellow guests and talking philosophy and Interesting. So actually what we're looking at are images that would have been mutually comprehensible. They are their discussion pieces as well. Absolutely. So the symposium master, the guy whose party it was, would have been going down to the potter's quarter in Athens, if they were living in Athens, and choosing the vessels that he wanted for his symposium. Mm-hmm. He would have chosen every piece that was going to be there. Oh my gosh, how interesting. So so it's almost like you can get the, the personal tastes of the master himself and then the idea of what they might have discussed, what might have gone on in that room. Absolutely. So the question for us is, right, is not just kind of identify the images, this is that goddess or that person. It's asking what reaction would your drinking guests have had when they came across these images, most crucially, in the process of using the vessels. Far too often, this stuff is studied through two-dimensional pictures in books. These objects are not two dimensions. They're objects that were used, moved around, in terms of the wine cooler, shoved in a big vat of water and left to bob up and down. I love this point, that that this art is three-dimensional. It is so important. We underestimate the idea that these things are turned around and examined and the sequences work together. So unless we think about how they were used at the same time as thinking about the images, we're never going to really understand Mm. how people would have engaged with them, what they would have thought about them, and indeed, as you you rightly put it, what kind of topics of conversation might have been prompted by the images themselves. But tell us a little bit about the actual date, the kind of origin of this mm-hmm. object, because it's, uh, I mean, it's very distinctive in the way it looks, isn't it? It's its not black on red, it's its red on black. Yeah, so, so this is what's known as red figure. Now that comes in from about 520 BC, we know that, but actually we can be much more specific about the date for this object. This is created between 500 and 470 BC, right. and we know that because we know the name of the artist who did it. Wow, that's because big. Because he signed it. So you can see on this that it says Durus Egrapsen, right? Okay. Durus uh, drew it, right? And Durus was a uh, quite a famed potter in Athens. We have about mm, 39 vases signed by him. There's about 250 to 300 attributed to him. And he has little telltale signs, like your Caravaggio yeah. or your Titian, right? He has little telltale giveaway signs. And one of them is if you see the collarbones yep. in this chap here. Oh, yes, they've right? got like a tail. There's a little hook. Oh, uh, yes. Right? And that is a Duras signature move, right? Along with the sort of the hip line being done as a wonky W. That's a Dura signature move. So one of the first things that happened with all these vases is, you know, experts, and particularly uh, John Beasley was one of the best, looked at all the vases that existed, and he basically managed to go through and attribute them all to particular 
painters based on either, you know, we have assigned one here, so we know this is Duris. So then you look for the particular ways in which he's painted. Then you go to other vases and look for those very particular the signature artist uh, marks again. I mean, this is something we take for granted in, in sort of post-Renaissance art that you yeah. can attribute through yeah. these sorts of, of signatures. But actually, to go back to 500 BC yeah. and to see this sort of skilled artistry, I mean, it's really taking my breath away. And now that you've pointed it out, yeah. that's all I can see. Yeah. I can it's, see the signature. You know, we moves. have the name of the guy who painted wow. it two and a half thousand years ago. And just, um, just think about that time. 500 to 470 BC is a key moment Ooh. in the ancient Greek story. In Athens, democracy has just been invented, right? The Battle of Marathon, the Persians invaded and, and the Athenians have repulsed them. The Persians come back again in 480 and 479 BC and the great victory of the Greeks over the Persians, right? The, the period in which this vase was made, you know, whatever drinking party and symposium it eventually ended up in, it was being made during the key period in Athenian history when their fortunes changed forever and put them on the, the track to becoming the dominant force of the entire Greek world. And made in that location, you think, made as well? Made in, and we can say exactly where, because there is a potter's quarter in Athens called the Keramikos, which is right by the city walls, and interestingly, right next door to the city graveyard. Uh -huh. So we know exactly where it was made, we know exactly who it was made by, we don't know who bought it, we don't know kind of who used it or how many times it was used, right? and there is the big question mark, because it was made in Athens by Durus, right? but it's not where it was found. It was actually found buried in a grave in Etruria in Italy. Oh my goodness! In Trevetri. Okay. Which is actually where about 70 to 80% of all the Greek vases we have today were found because cultures outside of Greece also loved this stuff. This is fashionable stuff, this and it's the best stuff. of the best, isn't it's it? best of the best. Mm. Now, we even know that Athens had an export market, producing stuff just to send out to southern Italy. And it's hilarious, because some of the stuff they send has Greek inscriptions <laughs> written on it, but it's gobbledygook Greek. Oh, no! Because they know the Etrurian don't speak good Greek. Oh, that's so they're brilliant. completely taking the piss. Oh about making this stuff, oh, these guys won't understand what the hell this is, let's write some it. rubbish on it, and they'll lap it up like it's, it's like, the it's best like selling to, It's like selling to tourists abroad now, and just like, we'll give them any old junk, they won't recognise whether it's good quality or not. Well, yeah, so, but, but this but is good quality. This is great stuff. So, you know, who knows what happened? This was made in Athens by Doris, 500 to 470. But what happened next? what its life story is, how it ended up in, in a grave in southern Italy as the prized possession of someone who wanted to be buried with it. Wow. Yeah. Who I mean, knows? It's, so, I mean, it, in terms of its subject matter, presumably this was to the tastes of the Athenians, but also to the tastes of the Etruscans. So they're emulating this idea of, of drinking parties, symposia. Absolutely, yeah. But they also, the Etruscans and, and, and seem to have, have really treated them as prestige objects, possibly more than the Greeks ever did. You know, Greeks don't bury themselves with Greek vases that often, right? Okay. It's, whereas the Southern Italians did it all the time in the trains. <laughs> so these seem to have become prestige items that, that, you know, if you own one of these over in Etruria, you clearly were a person of culture taste, ah. kind of international connections, ah. kind of all that kind of stuff. Okay. But the image, I mean, we have to spend some time We do, we images, do. I'm anxious right? to talk about what the heck now, is going on. So who are these creatures? Because, you know, you, what might you expect on a vase at a drinking party? Scenes of drinking. Yes. Right? Which I can clearly see is Absolutely. going on There's here. There's some drinking going on. But who are these guys <laughs> doing it? Because these are not what Athenians look like, right? No. You, they're men. Yep. But they have very long beards. 
And they're not quite men because they've got tails. Absolutely. They've got really pointy ears <laughs> and they're all butt ugly. Right? <laughs> These guys are satyrs. They are half goat, half man. Yeah. Now, satyrs frolic across all sorts of Greek vases, okay. and the sorts of things satyrs do are normally just beyond the boundaries of what you should do ah. as a respectable Greek citizen. So they are the, the, the limitations of polite society. What, what, yeah, so think about it. So you've put on your drinking vessels at a party where you're getting drunk and probably most likely going beyond the realms of what you should be doing, <laughs> images of people who spend their lives doing, doing what they should be doing. shouldn't be doing. So the question is, are these guys giving you exemplar of, hey lads, later on in this symposium we could uh, end up uh, doing something like this? So the question is, are these guys here as an exemplar of what later on, lads, we could be getting up to, <laughs> right? Or are they there as an example of the line beyond which we sh should not go. Okay, so almost like a moral exemplar. Yeah. So do you, is that what you think? Do you what, think this is sort of acting as a limitation? I think they act as both. Okay. Right? They're, they're acting out possible desires that we might have. You know, satyrs are creatures that are, are good for the ancient mind to think with, right? They allow you to visualise doing stuff which you might not be allowed to do. Well, sort of in getting reality. in touch with your animal side. Absolutely. You know, that thing that, you know, that element that's in all of us kind of, that is most likely to come out in the ancient Greek context. And also with wine. And with wine. <laughs> but look at the sorts of things they're doing. Now, yeah. you know, this guy here is holding a wine skin. Yes. And he's pouring it into directly into the mouth of another satyr who's lying on the floor ready to go. I mean, this looks like now, student hijinks. Yeah, but, but this is already breaking all the rules of your Greek symposium because no decent Greek would drink their wine unmixed. Ah. Right? You always diluted your wine because wine in the ancient world was super, super strong. Okay. Right? So, And again, the symposium master would make the decision, are we diluting it one to three parts water or two to three parts? Or you know, He would decide how strong the wine was going to wow. be at the symposium. But you, no one would drink it like this. So already there's an image of someone doing something a little bit crazy. Mm. Here on the other side, we've got a satyr who's managing to stand upside down and then trying to drink from a wine cup that's standing on the floor. Now again, you wouldn't be doing that at a symposium <laughs> because you'd be reclining on one elbow, taking your cup and, and you know, I also charmingly it's drinking from it. impossible, isn't it? I cannot Absolutely. see how that is working at all, but he's, he's attempting to he's sort attempting of sip it out of the saucer, right? yeah. But if you really want to see the impossible, okay. come with me around the other we'll side. We'll go around the other side. I mean, I... I <laughs> because this is the piece de resistance of the impossible. Okay. Oh my god. <laughs> so this. Sorry, listeners. Um, I have just got a bit of a shock with what uh, my possi possibly me. a warning of, of over eighteen content needs to be offered here because what we're looking at and what Nina's blushing red at. <laughs> I am. I'm going bright red. Is two satyrs uh, pouring wine into a wine cup, which is being balanced on the top of another satyr's erect penis. Yes. Now, there are a wow. couple of things that are interesting here. The first <sighs> is, if you look at uh, most of the other satyrs in this image, right? yep. they are not erect. No, we had a chap around the other side. Yeah, one chap around the other side, but the rest, and particularly around here, they're not. Oh right? Now, satyrs are, often are. Right? Okay. Sometimes you'll see all satyrs and all they can do because they're overwhelmed by all their desires, whether yep. that be to drink or to have sex. Right? Mm -hmm. But this guy, in this image, has obviously decided actively to get it up <laughs> in order 
to be able to play this party oh my trick. Oh gosh, right? this is this is just taking kind of student hijinks to another level. Yeah, oh, so God. so again, you know, this is not the sort of thing that one would expect <laughs> at a at a decent Greek symposium drinking party. And I will never forget, here's a personal story, the first time I came across this vase, I was sitting in supervision as a lowly uh, MA student mm. with my sort of professor top, you know, highest of the high supervisor. And we're looking at this image because I was working on satyrs at the time. And we're sitting there trying desperately to have some kind of academic conversation <laughs> about it. And, and he mused mm, silently for a moment and then went, hmm. Well, it's not at the right angle, is it? Oh, my it? gosh. At which point I sort of stutteringly had to ask for him to explain. And he's saying, well, if one was to take the reclining position that that satyr has with his sort of knees bent backwards True. and he's sort of leaning back on his back feet, uh, any normal penis, according to... I'm trying, very, I'm, I'm trying very hard. I'm such a, yeah, I'm, I'm such a prude. This is all very, would, very um, Greek for me. Would, would be sort of much more against the body. Okay, fair enough. It would not be at sort of, you know, standing up at the 45, 50, well, it's more than that. It's almost 90 degrees, isn't it? Which then enables him to balance the wine cup on top of it. So there are so many things about this image <laughs> that are not only shocking, but actually almost impossible. Well, fantastical. Fantastical. Yes. Mm, you know, beyond the realms, not just of what you should or should not do at the symposium, <laughs> but actually what one could possibly do. Oh, my goodness. As a human. Well, actually, that's that's the whole point, isn't it? I think we're seeing with... I mean, even as you look around to the side, there's a, there's a guy on uh, in these wonderfully acrobatic poses. And, of course, I mean, I suppose that's one of the, the benefits of the, the red figure where is that you can show muscles, you can show you know, all these weird articulations of the body that they're that they're performing this one is extraordinary but you're right i mean i suppose it's it's also as at a symposium maybe it would be allowing the people there to push their minds beyond the limits of restricted you know where where they can go to with it with their discussion uh, i mean is this definitely being used as a discussion piece in that case i mean i think you, again so that's the final piece in the in the puzzle isn't it to put it yeah. back into its its place where is it being used this thing is bobbing around inside a large cooler of water right it's being taken out occasionally when the wine's cool enough being the wine's being poured into something else so this is an image which people are never going to get it like we are in the museum today mm. stop standing still where we can move around it they're going to be getting flashes of this image yeah. as it's pulled out as it's turned around as it's poured as it's bobbing up and down in the water if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. What we found at the sessions at Warwick that we run is that when these things are put in large vats of water, they tend to, because of the fluid dynamics of water, tend to spin of their own accord. So this is a moving image. It's almost yeah. like ancient film. Imagine this turning, spinning, different SATA images, these different things that they're getting up to, turning, 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 moving out, bobbing up and down. And when you imagine it bobbing up and down, mm. imagine you're seeing the top of the image first and then it being revealed to you as it goes up and down. So, you know, you'll see the SATAs with a wine cup in their hand at the top there. And you might not think, you think anything of it. Normal, yeah. Fairly normal. You know, pouring some wine, absolutely fine. Somebody perhaps sitting on a couch below. It's only when it's pulled out fully. Do you get the full impact of the image? It's almost like those pens, the biros you get where you tip it upside down and the ladies' clothes drop off. Yeah. But I do, I also like the idea as well of, of the sensory experience of this because if it's moving, it's bobbing about, but also if the people looking at it are inebriated. Or getting progressively inebriated. That's giving evening. movement. Absolutely. You know, and as their discussion is limbering up, loosening up, moving around. Yeah. Kind of, you could, so, you know, there isn't just one way in which we should interpret these satyrs I think I think actually as the the vessel itself moved and was used as the evening progressed I think the interpretations could have gone across that whole spectrum mm. you know perhaps at the beginning of the evening if they saw that they think well that's clearly a sign of the sort of things one shouldn't get up to you know as, as a good Greek <laughs> by the end of the evening depending on the strength of the wine at the, that particular symposium who knows what they thought about Absolutely. where you know maybe they did try to try it out <laughs> and see if this was possible. Physically possible. I mean, in terms of reflecting, I mean, this is the thing that always fascinates me, is you take the artefact, you can put it into its, use, its situation of use. The idea that this is coming out of Athens at such a crucial point in, in its history, how is the imagery, how is this, re- this, this use of satyrs um, reflecting that, do you think? Well, I mean, what I don't think here is that we have any kind of commentary on the on the political or military campaigns that are ongoing. We do in some vessels and vases. You know, mm. they're much more um, commentating and reflecting on the current political uh, scene. Mm. Here, satyrs themselves as creatures have their own kind of dynamic of change mm. uh, during the time that they appear in vases. So when they start off, they're often very obviously not human. So mm. they'll have hairy goat legs, properly hairy goat legs. Um, you know, they won't have normal feet. They'll have goat feet, right? Mm. They're obviously not human. Mm. 
by the time you get further on into the 5th century, towards the end of the 5th century, they will be totally indistinguishable wow. from humans. So perhaps you'll just see a tiny bit of a bigger ear. So what you see is the way that they depict satyrs, it becomes more and more difficult for you to pick them out as satyrs rather than men. Wow, is that the, because the, the divide? The boundary line becomes more and more blurred. Oh, that's so interesting. The artist actually is making it harder <gasps> for the viewer over time, or posing an increasingly difficult question with, with, the, with the satyr creature over time as to where the boundary between civilised man and bestial man. Oh really my gosh, and, and that would be at a time that we, I suppose, would assume that Athens is becoming increasingly democratised and civilised, and yet in their imaginary worlds, they're blurring the lines. There's also something to be said here about the art as well, because um, one of the things I was looking into, the use of black figures and red figures, <laughs> one of the things about the Athenians developing the red figure was because... Um, it, on black figure wear, you could put, show men as in, in, in coloured black and women coloured white, so you could distinguish between the genders. On red, red figure wear, you couldn't. And so actually, the slippage between into androgyny is also happening in these images. Yeah, I mean, here, you know, this is an image of all men, right? Mm. Uh, the, the, the reason that red figure became the dominant mm. um, and, and black figure sort of fades out, we're probably in a, you know, we're in a period where they're still both being used, but, but in the next... Um, 10, 15 years, black figure will fade away, is, is primarily, I think, because red figure allows you to do much more detailed mm. realisation of the body. Because you draw in all the details, as mm. opposed to in black figure, where you actually scratched back in the details. Absolutely. So red figure allows you to do these impossible profiles, 3D positioning of the limbs, mm. trying to give profile, trying to give depth, perspective to the image. You know, these are the first times that the artists are actually able to do this kind of stuff. And actually what it's doing is prizing the human figure above all else, isn't it? Because one of the negatives, of course, is that you can't show any spatial mm -hmm. um, representation. The black background means you can't put them in a room, you can't put them in, into you know, perspective. Mm. But it means that you can lavish artistic love and care on representations of the figure, which of course becomes the dominant theme within the classical tradition but it also allows like you say this artistic freedom I'm so intrigued by these little things like the collarbone yeah. that this particular artist has used so in a way I suppose it also raises the status of the artist uh, the status of the, the painters of these of these Greek vessels is is an eternal conundrum mm. right? because we look at them saying we, we, we're like ooh, oh, amazing these vases have sold for over a million quid to date in museums the question that we're really unable to get a, a clear answer to is, what was the status of owning the best of the best of these in ancient Athens? Right? We know there are some pretty poor painters of Greek vases. If you're really strapped for cash, you go and get one of these. Where, frankly, I could do a better piece of painting. There's clearly some absolutely top guys that if you had an image by Doris, or a Zikias is another you know, famous one, that meant something. Right? Mm. But on top of this, there would have been a whole retinue of silver, gold, metal vessels that one could use at one symposium. Now, if you as a symposium master want to show off about your wealth, your power, your prestige, you know, are you going to do that, if you can, with precious metal? rather than with something that sparkles i mean this is again the, the nature of survival isn't it we tend to create almost all our knowledge of ancient greece from these sorts of pottery fragments and then i mean there are, there are hundreds of thousands of these things yeah. but you're right all the metalwork gets melted down it gets 
stolen, it gets sold. And so we take an isolated object out of its much bigger setting. Yeah. And you're right, I mean, I'm sure if this is a representation of what they're doing on their pottery, imagine what they're doing on their gold platters and, you know, the things that we haven't got. Or, or even if it was plain and undecorated. Mm. You know, the fact that it was still made of precious metal said something about what you could afford mm. much more than any any ceramic vase is ever going to cost however it could be but there's still a thing that excites me about these things which is again the skill of the painter because i suppose you could think of a, a fine penthouse apartment in new york and somebody's having a party and along with all the lovely lavish vessels and drinking glasses there's art on the walls there's 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 an investment in art that goes on this to me is suggests that they're investing in good art as well that this is a good painter that he signed it yeah i mean really the concept of art with yeah a exactly a, yeah i don't yet Think really, it's quite been invented. It, we're on the cusp. We're on the cusp because we can talk about these things as invented. objects to art, can't we? We can sort of think about them as moving towards yeah, artifacts. Artist you know, when, as you say, when artists start to sign things, yeah. right, that's a big moment. And we know on some Greek vases, for instance, that an artist will say, "I did this, and it's a damn sight better than the work of so and so, exactly. my competitor down the road." So we have those kind of competitions. Mm -hmm. We have those kinds of that sense of value of particular artists' work. We have moments where we, we see that they have pushed the boundaries of the possible but fundamentally within the Greek world anything that has an image on it or anything that is an image mm. is normally created to serve some other function rather than just to sit there looking pretty and for you to look at it as a piece of art and go mm, right yeah. so particularly in religion a statue of a god or a goddess or the decoration of a temple mm. all of that is done first off yeah. to honor the gods uh, are you and secondly, uh, through the brilliant creative work, the beauty been done. of it. I mean, this is the key to understanding the discipline of art history in many ways. Is that the concept of art with a capital A mm. is sort of invented by Vasari and really doesn't take off until the 16th, 17th century. But there's these these hints of the most beautiful, the most aesthetically pleasing objects that could be commissioned and made. And, and I think that you know there are some vases that have survived with images of the potter's workshop on them. Yes. Uh, or, or the sculptor's workshop on them. So actually showing sculptors at work creating things. Yeah. So they're obviously being self-reflexive. They're obviously thinking about themselves as creators and developing this sense of, uh, of the, the artist as they will finally become known. But the, the viewing public, right, in the Roman world, you start to have sculpture gardens where objects are put there for their value to look at right? but that doesn't really ever happen in the greek world the greek world is primarily asking these people with this skill to create something which has a function to perform in a context and i think the reason it's continued to fascinate is because for the connoisseur for the the art historian that has that eye they could exercise the sort of um, signature uh, analysis that you can do for great art post-Renaissance. But you're right, I mean, what are these things being made for? And, and they have a function. I mean, the fact that even in the image itself, you've got the, pe the, the satyrs using vessels like the vessel itself. It is referencing its, its own use, isn't it? Absolutely self-referential, yeah. absolutely. And the other one thing about it is, is it's being even more playful because there are two inscriptions on this. The first is Doris Agrapsa, Doris May painted this. Yeah. The other is um, the name of a boy uh, followed by the word Kalos, oh. i.e. that boy is beautiful. Oh. So, you know, we also have to think that, and that happens on lots of these vases, so you also have to imagine this vase being the, perhaps the sort of 
reflector or indeed producer of discussion about love, about eros, about beauty, attraction, yeah. about lust, about beauty, within a culture whereby you know men were expected to form attachments in their teen years with someone older, mm. um, another man, before they then went on to get married and have kids in you know in later life. Mm. That, that all these issues and elements and ideas are all wrapped up in the oh one vessel. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, that takes us on to a whole new level of discussion about uh, Eros and, and lust and, and, and also actually the, the stuff that's contained in this being a gateway, an opener to that sort of sexual experimentation as well. It's endlessly fascinating. And there's, could... there's one final level you could put on it because the guy who's who's rather yes, stately. I want to ask you about him with he, the with the he's yeah, holding he's, a he's got a cape on. Right, so he is a satyr again, but he's representing the messenger god Hermes. Uh -huh. So he's dressed as a messenger, uh, and, and what that has has sort of pointed to for some is that this entire scene should be read actually as what's known as a satyr play. Mm. Right? So the Athenians did drama in a massive way. Mm -hmm. They did their tragedies and their comedies. People know about that. But also they had what were known as satyr plays. Now, after a tra three tragedies, whereby you'd really spent your hours kind of depressed out of your mind, <laughs> there would always be a satyr play, a bawdy, bawdy comedy. Okay. To bring you back up, right. you know, kind of, if you were. Um, and where satyrs would run around doing the sorts of things that you can see here. So are we seeing on this vessel a reflection of a satyr play that may have been on the stage in Athens just the year before? Or the idea of a created satyr play that Duris has made up in his own mind? I mean, this is it's, it's about popular culture, actually. Yeah. And I mean, this is almost like having a film poster on your wall or and then using you know, it as a discussion. Last year's latest release yeah. or the release <laughs> And then you discuss that. I mean, it just, we, we tend to take these objects, put them in glass cases and, and idolise them as these, these are sort of inaccessible objects art objects but they're all documents yeah. they're documents of a living society a group of people who are using them and I think that re you've really brought that to life for me it's uh, I'll, n I'll never look at this the same way <laughs> having discussed it with you Michael it's been such a pleasure we could carry on talking we'll have to do another podcast together because it's so Done. interesting Done. talking Done. to you right, it's a great pleasure um, if you've enjoyed this you can follow me on Twitter I'm Dr Yanina Ramirez uh, you're on Twitter too aren't you Michael? I am it's Dr Michael C Scott yeah. excellent and if you can subscribe to the podcast by going to historyhit.com slash art detective now we are about to be kicked out of the british museum gallery by a group of very enthusiastic young school kids so i'm signing off hope you've enjoyed it thanks again michael